production. Part five of our series showcasing successful regional business founders takes us to sunny Bundaberg, where we go inside two vastly different businesses. It's episode 571, set amongst the sugarcane of the 12-year-old award-winning Small Business Big Marketing Podcast. Well, I said, welcome to Small Business Marketing Show, where successful small business owners share their souls to take your marketing straight to the lead. Now, here's your host, Mr. Tim Reed. And welcome back to your weekly dose of marketing molasses. That'll make sense if you know how rum is made, otherwise it'll just sound completely bizarre. I'm your host, Timbo Reed, and I have an insatiable curiosity for uncovering marketing strategies and ideas that help businesses, just like yours, to grow. You, infinitely more importantly, are a motivated business owner, and you're ready to crank out some great marketing to build that beautiful business of yours into the empire it absolutely deserves to be. And that's exactly what we do around here, so you are in the right place, my friend. As per usual, there is marketing G-O-L-D dripping from the ceiling over here at Small Business Big Marketing's HQ, so let's get stuck right in. A couple of quick check-ins before we meet our first guest. Um, if you haven't already, head over to smallbusinessbigmarketing.com for your free copy of my Marketing Wake-Up Calls ebook. 10 marketing wake-up calls that I've sort of picked up over the years that you probably should be implementing in your business. They're the marketing fundamentals, if you like, and you can grab that for free over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. And you can also grab a copy of my book, The Boomerang Effect, if you would love to learn how to create helpful marketing marketing and why wouldn't you? Enough of that, let's get on with the show. This week we leave Rockhampton, that was last week, and head down to sunny Bundaberg, the home of the world famous Bundaberg rum. I wish I could say I was interviewing a family member from the famous Bundaberg rum family, but it's actually now owned by a massive global, you know, conglomerate type stuff. So hardly the realm of the Small Business Big Marketing podcast. And whilst we won't be chatting to the owners of that global brand, we will be hearing from Rick Prosser of the Kelky Moon Distillery, which recently won the best gin under $50 at the International Wine and Spirits Show in London, and Rick did his time at the Bundaberg Distillery. So, some pretty good insights there, but first, let's meet a true Aussie legend in Pete Gash, or Gashy, as he loves to be known, who's the co-owner of the beautiful Lady Elliot Island, located at the southern tip of the Great Barrier Reef. It is a spectacular place. It's just kind of like paradise, and he, like, is one of the co-founders or owners. It's pretty cool. And amongst uh, many other accolades, the island is in TripAdvisor's Hall of Fame. You can't be a slouch and get into TripAdvisor's Hall of Fame. Pete's also the founder of Sea Air, a boutique charter airline with 10 aircraft and 100 employees that flies up and down the Queensland coast. He's actually their lead pilot and head mechanical engineer as well. Is there nothing this man can't do? The answer to that is I don't think so. He's an awesome bloke. Here he is explaining how his business journey unexpectedly began 38 years ago. Yeah, well, I'd been racing motorcycles professionally for Yamaha. I was sponsored riding motocross back in southeast Queensland, and I'd had a fantastic career of six odd years as a young bloke, you know, and um Met this beautiful young lady, Julie is her name, and she's been my wife now for 38 years. And we spent a lot of time at the racetrack, a lot of time here and there, and a few things happened that made me decide I'd always had this bug for the planet. I'd always had this, I was a bit different to a lot of kids, and it got me into strife at times at school. You know, kids would go out, I guess you could say, harming the environment or harming wildlife, and I just felt really awkward about it. But we're talking the 1970s, you know, so it was was a bit unusual. I just felt a passion for natural things. I felt we would b- belong to it. So I said to Julie, look, I want to do something different. You want to do something different. We're only young. Julie was only just 18 at the time and I was in my early 20s. I said, life's about excitement. Life's about getting going. Let's do lots of things. There's so many things in my head. I didn't even finish school, mind you, but I could ride a motorbike pretty good and I'd come from the farm and I could drive anything that had an engine in it. I could, you know, so I thought, let's have a go. Let's get going. And I'd always dreamed of being a pilot. And I always also dreamed of being a boat operator, a guy on a boat or in the water. Mm-hmm. I'd been snorkeling. I'd seen the Southern Great Barrier Reef. I'd seen Lady Musgrave Island and Lady Elliot Island and it lit a chink in my head that said, 
there's something here. You've got to do something. One night I said to Julie, let's get married. Let's have a big action-packed life. Do you want to come or don't you? And she looked at me and said, yeah, I'm coming. I said, it's going to be a wild ride. Jump on, let's go. <laughs> and that's pretty much what's happening. And even today at this age, you know, I'm nearly 62 and I'm at a buddy's thing and she said to him, God, it's hard work keeping up with him. He's crazy. But it's fun, you know. Life's about having fun, Timbo. Oh, I like that. I'd almost finish. I, I could finish the interview right now, Pete. And, you know, that, <laughs> in terms of marketing gold that you've shared, that is it. It is all about fun. And uh, <laughs> I spoke to another business owner earlier today and his criteria for any decision he makes in his business was actually, is it going to give us fun? Is it going to be fun for the staff? Is it going to be fun for the, everyone involved? So... It's not a bad criteria to run a successful business. Speaking of fun, Pete, and putting that promise to Julie into action, in 1989, during the peak of the pilot strike in Australia, you decided to borrow $600,000 at 18.5% to buy a business that you still own in Sea Air, an airline charter business. Take us through borrowing six hundred grand at 18.5%. At the time, it seemed crazy, and at the time, it seemed like you can't be serious, you're going to do it. And, you know, I had left the motorcycle racing. I had gone out. I did all sorts of different things, you know, built fences, cut down trees. I had a toilet cleaning contract, believe it or not, a, a, well, a national parks. It was fun, mate, because it was kept me out of bed early and kept me working hard. It wasn't just the toilets, it was all the national parks, the bins, you know, all the cleaning and the sweeping, all the parks behind Brisbane. So Julie and I would start at 3 or 4 in the morning. We'd go out and do that. Then we'd come home and have a shower and it was a competition to see who got in the shower first. We'd get in another truck and we'd go and do firewood cutting or we'd build fences or we'd cut trees down. So we had worked away together after we got married. I, as soon as I could afford it, I went and I learned to fly airplanes because that was my goal. I had this chink in my mind, we're going to the Great Barrier Reef, we're going to do something special. And as soon as I learned to fly airplanes, I saw the seaplane. I said, well, that's got my name all over it because it's an airplane and it's a boat and it's the Barrier Reef, it's got everything. So I went and I learnt to fly the seaplane down at the Gold Coast. And because we'd been working hard, we'd been reasonably successful. We'd bought and sold a few little properties here and there. We'd bought and sold a few little work trucks and things. We'd worked two days every day, seven days a week for several years. So we had a bit of a deposit. We had a bit of money behind us. And I went and I worked. Once I learnt to fly the seaplanes, I worked for the fellow that owned it and we got on really good. He even took me on the Burke to Broome Bash in 1989, driving one of those bloody crazy cars. And he had Sea Air Pacific on the Gold Coast and Sea Air Pacific in the Whit Sundays. And he asked me to get in and help him fix it because those tourism businesses were in dire peril. And I was just 29. And he threw the keys and he said, son, you're the GM, make it work. And I said, well, I'll make it work, but you've got to sell me the Gold Coast. I want to buy that business. And he said, we're going to find the money. I said, well, you let me worry about that. You just sign here. And so I went to the bank and, yes, it was 18.5%. It was crazy. But you just believe in yourself and you, you believe that you're going to get off your butt early in the morning and you're going to work long and hard. And let me say, for the next 10 years, I knew that I had my fingers in a mousetrap. I couldn't get out of it. The economy was just ratchet for the next 10 years. So how do you, as mindset-wise, how do you go, being passionate is great, right? Passion can get yep. you a long way. can also right. get you into a lot of trouble, right? Yeah. So yep. you're a kid in a lolly shop. You've, you've bought a plane. You now own an airline, albeit a fledging airline. It was just one plane. It wasn't the yep. best plane that you could have been flying in the air. You, you loved it and all, but there's still the need to make money. Is there a business plan somewhere? Is there something scratch, scratches on a, on a napkin that says, if <laughs> you're shaking your head going, no. <laughs> no, I'm saying, yeah, there's a clear business plan. And I think that's my strength if, if there's such a thing and, and each of us has some strengths and weaknesses. One of my strengths is persistence. The other one is I have a really simple rule. One plus one equals two. If you can't make it equal two, don't do it and don't ever try and make it equal three. It will never do it. So I had a clear business plan. I knew because I'd worked for Terry and I'd worked for that business since 85, 86. I'd been to Broome flying aeroplanes for a period of time. I had worked around the aviation business. I knew how to make one plus one equal two. That's why mm -hmm. Terry threw me the keys and said, sort this mess out. He had 75 mm -hmm. staff and 17 aeroplanes. And Pete got the gig for a year, sorted out, and then I went back home to my little business of our house and our one airplane and said, right, this is how we're going to get this to work. And, yeah, call it back of the envelope plan, call it all night sitting there in, in front of your notebook 
but I had a budget and I stuck to my budget and I had a plan and I, I, I always had a back door. And I think that's a critical element of any oh, business. Yeah. You know, we call it don't fly into cloud unless you're sure you're going to come back out the other side, you know, in aviation. You don't go where you don't think you can get back out of. So that aeroplane had to fly every day. I had to get out of bed and make it happen, and we did. I wasn't frightened of work. I wasn't frightened. I knew my market. I knew my business. I was on the Gold Coast when tourism was booming. The Japanese market was strong, and so I went at it. I bought one plane and hired the second one. As soon as I knew I could afford it, I bought the second one. Then I hired the third one. As soon as I knew I could afford it, I bought the third one and I hired the fourth one. And that's how we grew, carefully, but with an element of risk, but an element of calculated risk with certain mitigators put in there. We were very careful. And a lot of people say, oh, Gashi's a risk taker. Yeah, I am, but I'm a bloody put an awful lot of thought in it before I jump off that cliff, mate. Well, let's talk about risk, Gashi. You don't mind if I call you Gashi, do you? Quite like that. <laughs> yeah, I get a few different nicknames, mate. I won't tell you all of them. <laughs> <laughs> you had an engine failure that led you to buying even more expensive planes. Tell us about that little incident. Yeah, I was in that first little baby, that little little um, 206 that I'd bought back in 89. She was a beautiful little plane and we loved her, but we were pushing her really hard. And, you know, it was a long way to Lady Musgraven back in a small piston engine airplane. It'd take us nearly three hours up and three hours back, you know, so it was a long way. And so I guess you could say the airplane was on the limits of its ability. We needed to have better airplanes. But LMI was a $150,000 six-seat airplane. An LMD, which is the one I really wanted, which was a, a Cessna Caravan, was a 1.25 in those days, million-dollar aeroplane and 12 seats. So the maths didn't add up. Mm. And I'd actually been very fortunate. I'd been invited to Malaysia and I'd flown Dr Mahathir, the Malaysian Prime Minister, in that airplane from time to time. So I knew the airplane. I knew the job. I knew what it could do. I had no idea how I was ever going to get the money. And, like, who's going to back a bloke who's 31 or 32 or whatever I was at the time with that sort of money, with a business plan that I knew would work, but I had to convince the financier. So I convinced the Malaysians. And the reason I did it was because I'm coming home from Lady Musgrave one day in that little 206, and I had a great guy that built my engine. So I knew I had good engines. I spent a lot of money on those little pistons. But I also knew, because by then I was becoming an aircraft engineer, a beautiful little engine that was in it decided to drop a valve head and, and it was like bang, 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 and it was, uh-oh, we got no engine going on here, and I had to work my way through that. I was fortunate and a bit of knowledge in the old, the old story, know your airplane, and I got it safely into the water down near Torbal in behind Bribey Island, so no harm done, but a good heart-starting fright there for a time being. And I had a couple of guests on board, a couple of Japanese ladies. I called Julie as I was gliding towards the, the river at Torbal, I said, stick Ryan in the other plane, get him up here, i got a problem. What's wrong? Engine's out, don't ask me any more questions, I'm busy. <laughs> so Ryan came up, landed, put the girls in the plane, and I had to sit there swatting mozzies up the Pumice Stone Passage till I could get the plane down under the Bribey Bridge and back. So I had a lot of time to reflect on what the hell had happened. And by the time I got home, I said to Julie, look, that was friggin' close. I could have got hurt, those people could have got hurt. We are not in the business of hurting people. We're in the business of looking after our guests and providing a safe service, A, and then B, making a living and raising our kids. If we're going to risk people's lives, I don't want to do it. There's two things that are about to happen here. We're going to get out of this business because we're running the wrong airplanes or we're going to buy a decent airplane. Where are we going to get the money? How are we going to do it? And so we'd been fortunate. We'd been working with the Malaysians. So I convinced them to let me have the airplane for six months and bring it to Australia so I could then get some runs on the board and go to oh, the yeah. financier and say, hey, look what I've done. I just need one and a quarter. <laughs> and kind of that's what happened. you a bloke that w believes in working hard or working smart? Well, that's a good question, Timbo. Can I call you Timbo? You can call me Timbo Gashi. Yeah, look, I think both. I, I, think, I think God gave us a if, good brain or however we... If you had to choose. If I had to choose, oh, gee, I think working smart, mate. Working hard's good, but it doesn't... There's a lot of hard-working blokes out there and they're mm. good blokes and life hasn't dealt them the right hand because they perhaps have missed some opportunities. You've got to work smart. I think that's really, if you had to choose, I'd say work smart first, work hard right behind it. Mate, you've got to earn what you get. That's that's mm. my creed. You know, there's a lot of challenging times. I mean, COVID, number one, state the obvious, but it's a tough economy. It, it, it's just tough times at the moment. When confronted with a significant challenge, what's your process for getting through? Because I know there's a lot of business owners listening who are in that situation right now and may not have your passion gene. Some of the really important things you've got to do is you've got to work smart. And when you're facing a difficulty, 
you've certainly got to use your mind and 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 a 10 or 12 hour day is not going to cut it it's not going to cut it you've got to be working but then you've got to take the time to sit down and ponder the problem you're dealing with you've yeah. got to give yourself quiet time i think demonstrating leadership to your team because your team will follow you over broken glass if you lead them properly if you if you treat them well if you treat them with respect that they earn and deserve and you give them your best if you show that you're in the fight with them then they're in there with you, mate, all the way. And so I think it's a combination of things is how you deal with it because I know it's happening that there are some industries or some businesses, there's very little option. Well, well, you are, by the way, you know this, you have businesses in two industries that have been smashed by COVID, uh, accommodation mm. slash hospitality and the airlines, yet you yes. are, you're coming out the other end. So- all right, we've learned how to buy an airline <laughs> at 18.5% interest, I think. Uh, now you are the custodian of a beautiful island off the Australian coast in in North Queensland, Lady Elliot Island. How do you come to become the custodian of such an incredible yeah. place? Yeah, mate, I, I pinch myself every time I think about it. It really goes back to the things I've been telling you. You put your head down, you bum up, you work hard, you work smart, you put your hand on your heart. And in my case, I met a fellow called Bevan Whitaker. Bevan started Sunstate Airlines. For those who may or may not remember those days, Sunstate Airlines got bought out by Australian Airlines and it is now Qantaslink. And he always said, you don't sign contracts, son, you shake hands. And it was like, okay. And, and, and I come from the bush. So we, him and I, there was a fair few years apart. We were about 40 years difference in age, but we got on in a, in a way that was interesting, you know, for an older bloke and a younger mm-hmm. bloke. And I saw the world through different eyes to him, but by the hell, he taught me a lot of stuff. And, you know, I hope I taught him a few things. He's not with us anymore, God rest his mm. soul. But he, I just said to him, I want to bring my people to the island from the Gold Coast. And he said, oh, okay. And I'd done my homework and I said, I see your lease expires in 2005. I reckon by then you're going to be in your 80s. And I'm going to be in my 40s. You're going to need someone to sell it to. That's 10 years' time. That was 95. I said, why don't I be the bloke that buys it off you? You teach me. You've got 10 years to teach me to know how to manage this show. And let's shake hands on it. And he looked at me and he said, you've done your homework. He said, how did you know that? I said, I got my lawyer to check it out, done my homework. That's when it expires. There's no renewal provision. We're going to have to work together to get it renewed. And basically that's what we did, shook hands. And 10 years later, with a few with a few argy-bargies and things along the way, let's just say, we ended up buying that thing. We got the lease. It was a 10 plus 10 lease at the time. And blow me down, 10 years working under the old fella, yelling at me now and again, patting me on the head occasionally, pretty rarely, but mostly <laughs> giving it to me. Pete, you must so. have had an awful, you and you and Julie must have had an awful lot of experience running resorts and islands prior to buying the island, I say facetiously. Facetiously. <laughs> I, was an, I was a pilot and by then I was a licensed aircraft engineer and I knew how to ride a motorbike or a tractor or a truck, <laughs> you name it, I could do it. But as for all life. Nah, yeah, the circle of life. But, mate, University of Life, was, I, was, I was a Rhodes Scholar, Timbo. I learned it all on the roads, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, I learned a lot off Bevan, a lot. Right, yeah. He had that resort. He was a, a motor dealer, uh, a machinery dealer, and he found himself in aviation. So he, there was a lot of similarities in the two of us, mm. 40 years apart, a lot of similarities. And he even said to me, son, you've got sting in your tail. That was his words. I said, what does that mean, mate? So you just get off your ass and you do shit. And I go, oh, okay. Mm. Glass half full bloke, full of optimism, can-do attitude, a wife that is fully supportive of your dreams and clearly she loves what she does alongside you. Yeah. Tell us about a moment when you've been brought to your knees. So, Timbo, yeah, mate, there's been a few times when I've been close to my knees. But you're right, I am a glass half full guy and that night sitting up that creek, with little LMI after she had the engine failure, it's all right to laugh and talk and tell the story now all these years later, but it, it wasn't an easy time. Mm. It wasn't an easy time, you know, because my beautiful little airplane was broken. You know, we'd had issues. Obviously, I had a whole mountain of paperwork I had to deal with with Kaza to go through it and explain it and work out what went wrong and why. And then, of course, I knew I was facing the, am I going to get out of this business? Am I going to go and get that new machine? Am I going to get the money? That was a tough call. That was a tough call. And, and, you know, as I said, it's it's so easy to sit here and tell a story. But when you're the bloke in the hot seat with all the spotlight shining on you at that time, it's pretty tough. And I can fully sympathise with anyone in any business. I think I was blessed with a fair substantial amount of self-confidence, mm-hmm. belief in myself. My mum taught me a lot of things. And one of them was 
there's no such thing as can't, son. You, you, you want to do something, you can do it. So when we were up against the wall, you know, using the smart thinking, the hard work thinking and the, how are we getting through this? What is our way through this? What is what, is what we got to do? You know, I think that was one of them. Yeah, COVID put me in, uh, yeah. COVID hits, you could have gone one or two ways, obviously, with, again, an airline and a, an accommodation business. But daughter Amy steps in with a little social media strategy. What did she do? Yeah, she did fantastic, mate, and I and I can't thank both my daughters enough, particularly Amy with the social media. You know, she she came to me some years back, and we were we were just messing around with the marketing as best as we could, and she started talking about this thing called Facebook. I've gone, what's that? You know, and she puts it on my phone, and and next thing, one of the guys out on the islands posted a post, and I all of a sudden I saw its marketing value, and she knew how to make it work. So Amy has been very very instrumental along with our marketing team in utilising social media to our advantage because the reality is we've got a great product. It's a very natural product. You don't have to paint it in different colours. You don't have to, well, to be blunt, you don't have to bullshit. All you have to do is show them the pictures of what they see out there every day and the rest of it almost does it for you. So Amy's got this innate sense of understanding of that. So when COVID first hit us, it was, holy whizzer, we're in a bit of strife here. We had 110 crew, as I said, you had all these planes, had all these repayments, and the, the cap coming in stopped. But more than that, it had to go out because the guests couldn't come and some of them had paid in advance for their tour. So we had to refund them. So it was all going out, nothing coming in. That was some pretty sleepless nights. But you had to demonstrate courage, self-belief and leadership. And Amy said to me, Dad, you're going to make a post. You're going to tell all our guests what's going on. So I did. And we did that together. And then we then made a decision to try and keep the team together. We're going to try and keep them busy on the island. You couldn't not be on the island because very quickly it would have been pillaged by the people that would come out there by boat. And our marine animals, it's a protected area. So the wildlife needed people there to protect it because otherwise it's a green zone. People would have pillaged it, you know, taken advantage of the place. So we worked out a budget of how much we can afford to lose. We literally said... I said to Daniel, who's my general manager of Lady Elliot, and myself as I run Sea Air, I mate, well, you can lose this much a month and I'm going to lose this much a month and this is how many months we're going to last. And if we're still not back by then, if I haven't sold an aeroplane, I'm sorry, mate, because we're not going to trade insolvent. We're going to have to pay this many payouts to our staff and our guests. If we still haven't turned the corner by then, we're going to shut the doors. I don't know what else we can do, but at least we've got a plan. And one of the things I learned is plan for the worst hope for the best. So we had a plan for the worst. We can lose that much money a month and keep going. We can get the crew out there mm-hmm. and get them working together. And so Amy kept me active by videoing what we were doing, videoing the crew, working around the resort. Here's Fred. He's up on the roof. Here's Bill. She, he's painting. Here's, here's Jenny. She's working in the garden. And, you know, she highlighted that and worked with our activities team, Jessica and, and Jacinta and, and some of the crew got in there and they just ran around while we were working and they, what's Pete doing today? Oh, mate, I'm up to this. And what's Erin doing today? Or, you know, what's Jeffo doing today? And, and so we'd all talk to the camera and then the girls would post it. So what do you reckon happened? All our guests, all our potential guests that couldn't get, they're all looking, they're all sitting at home, so they're looking. They're watching us, you know, getting involved. In, and, and then Amy said, Dad, we're going to go and do a virtual snorkel together. Oh, are we? And I'll get <laughs> such and such to fly over the top of us with a drone so the four of us, we go out for a snorkel and we got a GoPro and we got a drone and we zoomed it all together and then she posts it. And the crowd loved it. You know, all our followers loved it because yeah. they were able to go snorkeling with us on the reef even though they weren't allowed to yet. So, of course, when June starts coming at us and we're going to be open in, in another month, we were pretty excited and sure enough, we opened and people supported us and they have continued to support us ever since. And Amy has continued to post you know, Jess and Jacinda and all the team continue to post and, and I do my little bit of posting. I don't do much of it because I'm not real good. Amy usually belts me and tells me what I've got to do. <laughs> and, and so it works good, you know, in that it's communication and communication is so key in business and it's a new modern method of communication mm. where you're telling a story but you're telling a true story. You're not gilding the lily. You're not rose-colouring it. You're telling it as it is, you know. I I had to tell them some pretty sad things to my crew and I had tears when we first shut those doors in COVID. So I just didn't really know where we were going to end up. After all these years, Julie and I busted our butts. I remember I looked in the eye and I said, "Hun, if we get to the end of this with one airplane, we're okay. I'll just keep selling them and keep paying the bills and we'll just get our way through it. I got five left. I had nine at the start. 
we're not scared to keep going and, and that's what we do, you know. So, but we're not crying about it. We're happy. We're pleased that we're surviving and we're getting going, you know, and that's really us. Pete. Or well, should say, Gashi, it's a great story, mate. And and thank you so much for sharing it. Uh, LadyElliot.com.au is where I'd be going if I was listening to this right now and seeing that beautiful island. Your vacancies, I've had a look at your your calendar, your booking calendar. Mate, it's, it's great out a long way ahead. Well done. Yeah. Yeah, and look, I'll, I'll tell you a bit about that. We're permitted to have 150 guests in our resort. We've got 160 beds. We've got 44 rooms. We're going to have 150 overnight guests. We have 100 day guests, right? That's 250 people. Now, I did 10 years under Bevan and I saw it when we'd run with 120, 130 in-house in the middle of summer and I've run with 110 or 120 in-house and I don't like it. I, I think if, it, if I enjoy it, my guests will enjoy it. I want them to enjoy it. So we're limiting ourselves and COVID taught us this. We're limiting ourselves to around about 80 or 90 in-house. We could have more, but we don't want it because for us, it's not about making a fortune. It's about making a difference. We want every guest who comes out there to have a fantastic holiday to get the bug for looking after the environment, for looking after places like Lady Elliot and enjoying it and not feeling like they're crowded in a sausage factory type of an arrangement. They've got to feel like they're an important part of it, and they are. So we bring 10 or 20 day guests, 70, 80, 90 overnighters, and we're not even at half capacity and we call ourselves full. And it's frustrating at times, but we don't want to overdo it, you know. Did you put your prices up? as a result of reducing your intake? No, we have kept our prices similar. No, in fact, we've lowered our day guest prices. And, and again, that's another little point. You know, people said to me, Pete, you've got a golden opportunity to put your prices up. And it's a temptation. Do you know what I said to myself? I came from a fairly humble beginnings. I came from a place where my family didn't have lots of money. We couldn't afford a whole lot. But somewhere along the line, someone gave me a chance to fall in love with the environment. I was fortunate. I got a couple of people helping me to see things. And I want a Mr. and Mrs. Ordinary Aussie to be able to afford to come to Lady Elite and let their kids come out and fall in love with it because we don't inherit the earth from our parents, mate. We borrow it from our children. And to me, it's so important. The future belongs to the Amys and the Chloes and all the young kids of today. So it's up to Pete as the custodian to look after that place, leave it better than I found it and hand it down to them. But it's still got to be a financial proposition, mate. Don't get too caught up with thinking, I'm a greenie, I'm hugging trees, we're not making money. We have to at least cut the cloth every year. We have to at least pay away, pay all our bills and know that we're leaving the legacy and living the legacy to make the place better than we found it. Well, there you go, team. Lady Elliot Islands and Sears Pete Gash. I told you he was an Aussie business legend. We'll have to get him back on the show for a bit of a deeper dive because I just have a feeling he's got a lot more to give. Like a lot of these uh, regional Queensland business owners we're coming across, they've just got so many great business insights and stories to tell. I uh, I really enjoyed uh, chatting to Pete. I hope you did too. I love the fact that he's clear on his superpower, like really clear. Are you? I think mine's connecting people. I've always enjoyed it and I feel like I'm pretty good at it. Got a decent network. Sort of good to work on your superpower because that's what you're particularly good at. Love to know what yours is. I'm not so in love with, what do you say, no such thing as can't. Probably is. Sometimes you just got to go, well, you know what, gave him a best shot, can't do it anymore. Am I being negative? I don't know. You tell me. But I do love his quote around, we're here to make a difference, not a fortune. Hallelujah to that, brother. If I grabbed your attention, let me know by calling the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline on 0480-0151-50. Righto, let's meet Rick Prosser, our next Bundaberg business legend. After 13 years working at the world-famous Bundaberg Rum Distillery, Rick opened his own in 2017. Why wouldn't you? Uh, he makes gin, rum, vodka. It's called Kelky Moon. That's the brand. It's the name of the distillery. It turns over, it will turn over, I should say, $4 million this year. Well done. Seeing he only opened it up in 2017. He's got 16 staff. 
plus four volunteer staff, 30,000 visitors annually, and recently was awarded the world's best gin under $50 at London's International Wine and Spirits Show. Uh, we've had a previous guest, uh, Stu McGregor from Four Pillars. He won the best gin in the world at the same show. So there you go. We've got two gin legends on the podcast. Here's Rick sharing what his time at the Bundaberg Distillery taught him. It set me up with a very good platform and to structure a bit better than, you know, outside of other businesses. So they're very big on having very big blocks at the bottom, big rocks to set the foundation. So I've always leaned towards that, setting a strong foundation for for what I do. And that's the, the Bundy background is, you know, they build off that core brand. What What are those foundations? Well, with a brand like Bundaberg for, you know, 1888, it's a great local brand. It's a great Queensland brand, and that sets a really strong pillar. Consistency is very important. And then it leads into having loyal customers and loyal supporters. So I knew for our business that if I set really good foundation, I'd get loyal support from, from the Bundaberg locals and, and the rest throughout Queensland. And we've been fortunate that that's what's happening. The Bundaberg logo, for those who don't know, is a polar bear. And I love the phrase that you used when we were off air a couple of weeks ago, Rick, saying, uh, don't poke the bear. So you didn't poke the bear upon leaving Bundaberg. You no, left I, on good I, terms. I did. I left on extremely good terms. I wouldn't be where I am today without Bundaberg Rum as a brand and the amazing people that I got to work with on site and learnt from. So, yeah, you you don't poke the bear. We, for us as a small business in the same town as two iconic brands in Bundaberg Rum and Bundaberg Brewed Drinks, we work with them and we try to, you know, be part of their journey with them. You're working at the Bundaberg Distillery for 13 years. There must have come a point where you thought, look, I need to do this myself. I need to prove to myself, was it, that you could do, you could be a distiller yourself or what was that decision? Yeah, there was a lot of creativity in certain aspects of the brand. Um, they'd have some new site managers come in. So, you know, every three to five years, there'd be a little change in direction with the organisation. So there was the freedom there. Then sometimes it would tighten up. But, yeah, I think there comes in a time in anyone's life where, you you know, you're not creatively strangled, but you think that, you know, I can do this and mm-hmm. you get the confidence. In, in what you do and, and that's what we decided to do was take a bit of a, a gamble, so, so to speak, and it was a big risk for me because Bundaberg Rum was my first full-time job that I'd ever been given. And then after 13 years to say, I'm packing up, I'm, I'm going to go and have a go on my own, it was a big risk, so yeah. What, 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 what was it inside you? Was it a cockiness? I don't. Just talking to you now, it didn't. You're not a cocky bloke, but was there a cockiness thinking oh, I can do this even bigger and better? Was there a creative streak where you just needed to express your own creativity and build your own product? Have you had you always wanted to run your own business? What was it? What was the itch? I think it it always reflected for me back to sport, like growing up, young Australian male playing rugby league and cricket. I think all of us have that part in us where we want to be captain. And I always, <laughs> yeah. and I always, you know, wanted to be, a, you know, why, did, why couldn't I get opportunity to be captain at a footy team or something like that? So I think when you get the confidence in what you do in the industry of your choice, it gives you that confidence to put your hand up and say, I want to be my captain. I want to be the captain. And there's no, no one else really that can put that into you except yourself. And, that was one thing that I learned very quick when we started the business was that I stopped to look around for other people to do a particular job and I realised I was the captain. Right. Yep. So you're four, you're four years in now to being the captain of Kelky Moon. Do you love being captain? Yeah, I do. It's, um, you know, I've got my wife involved as well and sometimes a lot of people that visit the distillery say that she's the captain. But <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, what I've done with the brand is – I've had to put my name to the products and I don't release any product that I don't think now fits that brand. You know, yes, I founded the business and I'm an owner of the company, but I've got a duty of care for that brand. Mm-hmm. And the brand is starting to become its own identity and that's where I feel that I've got to be a caretaker for it and, and look after it. And hopefully a generational thing happens within the families and it can continue on. 
How do you start a rum distillery? Or, well, in fact, Kelky Moon's gone beyond rum. You've got vodka and gin and liqueurs and mixes, and you've got all sorts of stuff going on there. Now, rum has an ageing process. From my understanding, I don't think gin has an ageing process. So how do you start a business like that? Is it like, do you need a year out to start stockpiling or what happens? When I finished with Bundy Rum, I went out as a consultant to help set up another distillery. So I did a a three-year contract there. And then that's when we really decided that we could do this. Like 16 years of making alcohol for everyone else was a fair apprenticeship and Mm. it was time to to have have a go. It was the Aussie thing to have a bit of a crack. And so financially we weren't there and so I was working a part-time job in distribution at a local bottle shop while we were getting the business up and running. But I always had inside the dedication and drive that if I was putting my name to a product and I was fortunate that I had five signature bottles at Bundy Rum that if you put your name to something, it's got to be good quality. And and so that's where we started. We started very small in a little shed that. 200 square metres and a couple of stills worth of probably about $5,000. And the day that we opened, we had to open. If we didn't open on that day, we we were going to be broke. So we were very lucky that we had great support from our locals here in Bundy. What was opening day like? Describe it. It was very nerve-wracking because we were launching a new company on gin and vodka in a rum town of 130 <laughs> plus years. <laughs> How'd that go? And, and the thing that I say when I do the tours that always gets a bit of a giggle, and I hope your listeners do, is the one thing that we underestimated was the power of the female consumer in Bundaberg. <laughs> so you the white spirit. No. So the white spirits, the gin and vodka, and that's what we ended up building our brand on was the, the gin and the vodka, good quality, affordable, and it started to build those blocks. It started to build the foundation of what the brand is now built on. So was it was your original idea for Kelky Moon to be a rum brand? It was, he says, shaking his yeah. head. On, okay. Yes. <laughs> yeah, rum. Um, but, 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 but at some point, so what's the split now in terms of rum, vodka, gin? Where the, is the money over in the white spirits at, the, at the, this point in time? Yeah. yeah, gin globally has taken off in the last... Oh, uh, mate, it's yeah. gone bananas. <laughs> Yeah, especially in Australia. So for the listeners that aren't aware, rum, whiskey and brandy in Australia has a legal two-year-old maturation time. So when you're a new business, yeah, minimum two years. So if you're a new business, you've got minimum two years up your up your sleeve before you can lease, release any dark product. So gin and vodka was the cash flow. And we were just fortunate that it was the right time, the right place for our region to launch gin and vodka in a, in a solid way. And the rum is, it's a slow process and it mm. takes a lot of time. Mm. There's a lot of variables to it. Not only have you launched gin and vodka well, you have won in the International Wine and Spirit Show in London the best gin under $50. And you're not even, well, you're four years old, mate. That is just a fantastic achievement. Yeah, that little gin, the classic. So, again, for our business, um, and this came down to being a new business owner and targeting different markets, we decided to launch a product at sub $50, and that was our classic gin, and that was my background at Bundy Rum. Their range catered for a lot of the consumers with, you know, from a, a UP rum up to their Solera, and we did the same with our gins, started at an entry level up to a, a Navy strength. So, the classic retails at $46 a bottle, entered it into the International Wine and Spirits Competition in 2018, and it pulled off a gold. It was the only gold medal to get um, given in the 37% category out of 620 entries that year. And for me, it was really important because it showed our locals that we weren't just giving them a subpar entry-level gin, it was top quality. And it's distilled, made the same way as the premium gin that we make in our Navy. So it's really Mate, good quality. It's really impressive. You, you mentioned Solera before, which I think is Bundy Rum's premium rum. Is that correct? And how much does it go for a bottle? About I think it's 100, 180. I thought 180. it was a bit more than that. I, for some reason, I thought it was 500 bucks. But either or, 
it's yeah. not cheap. And um, just a little in a side story, I did the distillery tour at Bundy a few months ago and they give you two drinks at the end of your choice and I thought, oh, well, just I need to try the top shelf rum because I'm not really a rum drinker and let me see what the really good stuff tastes like and I thought it was terrible. So I went back and asked to, for a bit of Coca-Cola to be added to it, which is I'm probably not the first plug to have done it, but they looked at me quite, you know, weirdly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, some in the industry are saying it's the next gin, the rum industry. Yeah, it's it's gaining momentum, but it's still well, probably a good five years away. I hope for your case that is that is the case because then you got gin and rum covered, and you're off to the races, mate. You know we won't see yeah. you for dust. Tell me, that's um, why we're yeah, banking barrels. We're banking barrels at the moment. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah. Maybe you should sell them. You know, you could buy a share in a you know a, a share or a title in a barrel, and uh, I think you yeah, distilleries do that, don't they? They do. It was done. Um, it's starting to make a little bit of a comeback. It was done down in Tasmania in a bad way, which um, really brought a lot of negative um, news to the industry. Mm. Where You said to me a few weeks ago, the hardest part of your business is selling the product. What's hard? Correct. Um, a lot of brands, a lot of big brands, a lot of craft. Competition. Um, so competition, yeah. It's, it's friendly competition, but there's so much out on the marketplace for the consumer. And, you know, as a, as a young fellow growing up, we didn't have the Dan Murphys of today with such a big selection of alcohols to choose from. And you've got a lot of big players in the industry in the beer, wine and spirits. So for a little guy, we don't have that big marketing dollar like the big so, guys So let's do. just work through that because I think that's a fascinating marketing challenge for someone like you. You walk into a Dan Murphy's, and for overseas listeners, Dan Murphy's is the biggest wine, beer, and spirit retailer in Australia. Uh, they're, they're everywhere. Now, you go to any category in Dan Murphy's, and there are a lot of brands, whether you go to the rum brand, the bourbon brand, the Chardonnay brand, there's a lot, right? So let's say you have managed to get a customer interested in gin. So you've, you've got them at the gin aisle, but unfortunately, the gin aisle has hundreds, let's say a hundred brands there. What yep. does a little brand like Kelky Moon have to do to get noticed outside of those locally in Bundaberg who go, well, that's a local brand, I'm going to buy it. But what if I'm down on the Sunshine Coast? What if I'm in Adelaide? What are you doing to get people to buy Kelky Moon? Yeah, it's it's a hard one. And like you said, uh, if, if you could think back to the bays of gin, Five years ago at Dan Murphy's, now there's three to five bays of just gin. The big retailers have started to really identify that people are wanting to drink more local made, which is lovely. But to stand out on the shelves, people shop with their eyes. So you could have the best looking bottle with the worst product in it and people will still buy it. Well, they'll so, buy it once. And, and yeah, they'll give it a go, but it's getting them back and this is what I got told when I was um, working as in the wholesale industry while we're setting up the brand. Rick, you need repeat buyers. You don't want one-offs. You want them as repeat customers. And for me, it was always focusing on quality and being able to consistently reproduce the liquids that we make. Um, with the two distillers that I've got there underneath me at work, that's their job to constantly reproduce the recipes, not to reinvent the wheel. Mm. We have key people that love our brands and get them to drink it and taste it the same that it does today and next year. Yeah, so back to that question, it is a hard gig. And if you don't have sales reps on the road in each state, it's even harder to get brand presence in store. But also I give credit to those big chains that they do look at the businesses in each state and put us as like a local hero, not to put too much strain on the business mm. because mm. they kind of know how big our businesses are and we can't support South Australia out of Queensland or, you know, WA out of New South Wales. So it's they're a bit strategic with it, but that's where the big players come in with your your Pernards and Diageos and stuff that have a lot of yeah, presence. Yeah. And, I must say, like Dan's is good, a good example of despite, you know, a massive, massive retailer, but they do have these sort of little local aisle ends where 
the local distillers get to be showcased, and I think that's that's fantastic. It is a bit of a marketer's nightmare. I look at my beautiful girlfriend Sarah and I are, are gin drinkers, and you know I go out to Dan's, and there are a couple of brands of gin that we really love. But because there are so many brands of gin, and because there are so many beautiful designs, it almost mm. becomes like I can't buy the same bottle of gin twice because that design over there is beautiful and that'll look good on the shelf. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a real challenge and you don't have the kind of marketing dollars or advertising dollars that, you know, like a, a Gordon's or a blue, a blue Sapphire is going to have. So, I mean, can you talk marketing dollars and, and, and where they go? Yeah, they're happy to like catalogue, digital display, et cetera. We can, you know, we can put money behind the product and try and grow it. Again, uh-huh. for me, as a new business owner, and it was a big learn, and that's why, you know, I just really focus regionally and in Bundaberg, our wide Bay area, and then Queensland. I've, I've never really tried to push real hard into New South Wales or Vic because then it, it's bringing on that next chapter of reps and et cetera, that people that we don't know where our business, we're a solid family business of 16 people. So I know everyone in the business and, um, yeah, it's just, it's just one of those things in the industry. It's, it's hard, but you, we just can put the money towards it, but you've got to look at that marketing dollar is what you're going to get back as well. I hear mum's your accountant. Mum is the accountant, yep, and bookkeeper, and she also cracks the whip when people are a bit late to pay up. So That's good. <laughs> she's pretty well, solid. Yeah, got it. Yeah. Am I right in saying that uh, in the early days, because as, as an alcohol manufacturer or whatever you call yourself, a distiller, um, there's excise yep. duty to collect, there's uh, GST to collect, there's a whole lot of taxes you have to collect, which isn't, aren't yours. You've got to hand no. them on. So in the first yep. sort of five months of business, do you think you, did you think you were rolling in it only to find out that you weren't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And that's what a lot of people don't understand is the excise component in a bottle of alcohol here in Australia. And it's a quite common thing with the visitors we get to the distillery, the pricing on alcohol, it's that excise rate. And yeah, we and it goes up twice yearly. And for us, the day we opened and we saw that money coming into the bank, it was beauty. But then <laughs> the next month, on the 20th of each month, the excise payment's Ooh. due and, and out it goes. Just, just, so, yeah. just, just give us a laugh for a minute, Rick. A hundred dollar yep. bottle of spirit. How much do you end up seeing of that hundred bucks? Yes. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I, it's a hard one. I always work off a seven hundred ml bottle at thirty seven percent, which is basically your traditional Bundaberg UP Gordons. You're looking at around twenty two dollars fifty at the moment in excise tax per bottle. And um, and then you've got your GST on top of that. So they're not a hundred dollar bottles. They're fifty. They're no, fifty they're or sixty dollar bottles. They're 40. about forty forty dollar bottles. So your Gordon's gin, your Bundy rums at forty. So yeah, you've got about twenty two fifty plus GST, and then you've got to factor in all your costs, overheads, etc. Into that. So um, that's why a lot of my friends in the industry thought I was quite mad selling forty six dollar bottles of gin. Yeah, but right. for me, for me, it was all about my location and my market. My market is different to Tasmania. Tasmania, they can sell $250 bottles of whiskey. But if yeah. I was trying to sell a $75 or a $90 bottle of gin in Bundaberg and just relying on that, we wouldn't be having this conversation because I wouldn't laugh you out of town. There's the upside and the downside of being a regional business. And, uh, you know, that's one yeah, of the downsides. And, yeah, and that's the advice because I do – because I've been in the industry a long time, I get a lot of people that will make contact and have the dream of setting up a distillery. And that's pretty much the first question that I'll say to them is, A, how are you going to sell it? And B, do you know your market? Mm. Rick, uh, Kelkie Moon, talk to me. So? <laughs> the name. <laughs> the name. It is a bit different. Um, so we, my wife and I, we Built our home. We were very fortunate that we got to build our home, our first house in 2010. While I was still a, a Bundaberg Rum employee, we're very fortunate that the parent company of Bundaberg Rum is Diageo and they're the biggest spirits company in the world. So some might say that I was a bit wider back then with the a bit of getting the palate up to speed in taste yeah, testing. Of course. And where we, where we built our home is in a suburb called Kalki in Bundaberg. 
just not far from the Bundaberg Rum Distillery. I can see the distillery from, from the front door. Yeah, it's where we built our home and we were one of the first in the estate and we would have uninterrupted views once a month of beautiful full moons coming up over sugarcane. And I'd say to, Cal, uh, to Kylie, I'd say, come and have a look at this Kalki moon. And she's like, she would be going, what are, you, what are you going on about? And I'd say, come and look at this Kalki moon. So Bundaberg as a town is extremely flat. We only mm. really have one hill, which is uh, the Hummock, which is an ex-volcano. And so, yeah, when the full moon comes up and you've had a couple of drinks, it looks quite spectacular. So, Rick, you are, you are an yeah. absolute romantic, honestly. <laughs> Kylie's lucky to have you. Yeah. So <laughs> it's kind of, it's a little bit reminiscent around the Gangajang song with the, because um, that song, you know, the cane cracking over the cane fields, that was written oh, about Bundaberg. So Great yeah. song. Great song. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, okay. that's, that's, yeah, that's homage to Bundaberg, and and so is the name Kalki Moon. It's um, it's spelt with an e on the end. Kalki, K-A-L-K-I-E, is the suburb. But for marketing, I drop the e off, and constantly, still to this day, have the locals telling me I spelt it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got an opinion, you know that, Rick. Everyone. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, buddy, uh, congratulations. I mean, what you've done since 2017, I mean, 16 staff, 4 million turnover, you're in Dan's, you're in Liquorland, you know, you've got 30,000 visitors a year coming through doing your tours. I just think it's a great story and, and well done to you, buddy. Uh, another you. successful Queensland regional business. Kelky Moon, without the E, dot com is where you can go and buy some of the finest gins, vodkas, and soon-to-be rums. Rick, well done. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate it, mate. Well, there you go, team. Kelky Moon's Rick Prosser. Oh, what a good guy. I love his approach to building on the big rocks in your business first in order to set the you know the right foundations, plus his willingness to roll the dice and back himself when it comes to big ideas that have the potential to catapult his business forward. Have you got that courage? Bloody hard to find sometimes, isn't it? But from what I can tell, speaking to a whole lot of successful business owners, what is it? You know, the higher the risk, the higher the reward. Again, if something grabbed your attention, I would love to know. So call the Small Business Big Marketing Hotline. Put this number in your phone, 0480-015-150. If I play it on the show, be sure to include your website address or business name for a little bit of love. Hope you enjoyed this fifth instalment of the series showcasing amazing businesses in regional Queensland. I'm really enjoying bringing it to you. You loving it? I hope so. Next week, it's a home game for me as we catch up with two amazing business owners on the Sunshine Coast. Spirit House owner, Ackland Berry. Spirit House is like one of the most famous restaurants in Queensland. And Koyo Yogurt founder, Sandra Gosling. And my goodness, that is an awesome, awesome story. If you would love to know how and why to create some helpful marketing, then grab a copy of my book, The Boomerang Effect, over at smallbusinessbigmarketing.com. And if you're loving the podcast, and if you got this far, you probably are, then you'll find 570 more episodes on your favourite podcast app. And as has been the case for the past 12 years, this podcast was presented by me, Timbo Reed, the music bed massaged to within an inch of its life by Hammond organ aficionado Lockie Dolly, and then gently moulded into shape by producer Romy Sher. Thanks, Rom. Until next time, thank you so much for tuning in. May your marketing be the best marketing. Bye for now. <laughs>